This is episode 59 of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. We're so excited to have you with us on this episode of To Birth and Beyond. I'm Jesse Mundell, mom, kinesiologist, and fitness coach to pregnant and current moms. And I'm Anita Lambert, mom, pelvic health and orthopedic physiotherapist with a focus on women's health. On the show, we provide information and education on fitness, the pelvic floor, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health. We offer a brave space to have candid and vulnerable conversations on the struggles and joys of motherhood, including all aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional health. While you're listening in, please remember that the information on the show is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please speak with your medical provider for all things related to your healthcare. We're so excited to have you. Let's dive into today's show. Welcome to another episode of To Birth and Beyond. It's Jesse Mundell and Anita Lambert. Today we have a special guest, Rishma Walji, and we are going to talk all about things fertility. So I'm really excited about this one. I think that it's going to be a lot of really useful information if you're listening in. We're going to talk about all different stages and factors that that relate to fertility. So Rishma, thanks so much for being on with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about this conversation. Yes, thank you for joining us. We'll give a quick intro to you and then we'll talk more specifically about how you help the patients and clients that you work with today. Rishma is a naturopathic doctor, acupuncturist, and PhD. She has been working in clinical practice for over 16 years. Dr. Rishma has a unique balance of scientific, evidence-based knowledge, and natural holistic healing experience. What she's learned is that there are options. There are steps you can take once you learn how things work. Dr. Rishma helps families of all kinds along their journey to parenthood through fertility, pregnancy, and postpartum recovery. She has dedicated her career to teaching people to understand their bodies and their physiology, empowering them to manage the things that are in their control, and ultimately achieving lasting results. All right. Tell us more specifically about the work you do currently and on the day-to-day. Yeah, so I have a clinical practice. Um, Most of what I see is hormonal stuff, so women's health. I do a ton of fertility, which is where my passion is. And then, of course, through that, um, people end up staying with me through pregnancy and postpartum. I used to actually doula, which I know um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are interested in. I don't do that anymore. But, um, yeah, really passionate about women's health just generally, but specifically around the perinatal and fertility time frame. How did you get here in your career? What led you to this point? Um, you know, I started off sort of going into healthcare as I think many people do when they go into healthcare kind of with a personal journey. And so I did have some personal health issues. My family had some health issues. And so I went into it for that reason, but something changed early in my career. Um, when I was early in practice, I met this lady who came in and she basically was like, just get rid of my periods. She came in really angry and she's like, just make them go away. And I've heard that you know, from other people, but not with the same intensity that she came in with. So I thought, you know, she must be having some sort of discomfort or pain. And I'm totally all for that. Um, treating that. Let's let's work on that. But as I got into her story, she was saying that she had such intense pain that she was doubled over. She couldn't move, you know, three days out of her cycle every single month. She couldn't have sex because it was painful. It interfered with her relationship. She couldn't have kids. She was in her 40s by this time. And it was just extremely debilitating for her. And so I I got into it with her. You know, it was a very emotional conversation. And I said, you know, do you have endometriosis? And she didn't even know what that was. And as we got into it, it turned out that she she did have it. She went in for further testing after we talked. 
And she came back into my office crying after she had finally figured it out. And she said, why didn't anyone tell me this? Like I wasted 20 years of my life. I, you know, had three years. If you add up all the days of pain she was in three years of her life, she was in pain, doubled over. She got divorced. She didn't have kids. Like her whole life was impacted by this. And not once did anyone mention that this is not how she's supposed to be feeling. And so that really just totally changed my career. And I just got so passionate about educating women and, you know, telling them what is normal for their body and what might indicate a problem. And that's sort of how I got into the fertility side of it. And when, uh, when patients come in to see you specifically for fertility consulting, what typically are they experiencing? I know that can be a big question, um, but yeah, what, what are they typically experiencing with that? Yeah, so some people are coming in, um, you know, it's really a large spectrum. So sometimes they're coming in because they're trying to be proactive and they've heard about someone who's had fertility problems or maybe their sister or their mom or someone has had problems or they maybe have an irregular cycle. So they're anticipating that maybe their cycle isn't doing what they think it should be doing to get pregnant. So it could be on the early end of the spectrum. And then I also have a lot of people who come in who have been trying for some time and they're either trying to avoid maybe advanced techniques like IVF or IUI. And I also have people who are in the process of going through IVF and IUI, and they're looking for someone to support that. So it's really a wide range of, um, of symptoms or of reasons why people will come and seek support from me. Okay, what does fertility even mean? I love that you asked that question because, you know, it's so hard to kind of understand our, I guess, our role as women. A lot of people really identify with this fertility piece, which I really try to separate because I find it's very difficult. Um, but fertility generally, I would say biologically, is your body's process of going through and having a baby. So getting pregnant and then reproducing. Essentially, that's where fertility comes from. But a lot of people talk about infertility, which I really don't like because it sort of indicates, you know, something's wrong with you or you can't do it or which really isn't in your control. So I'm really glad that you asked about fertility and not infer infertility. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make. Yeah. Okay. So does fertility matter if you're not trying to conceive? You know, it's interesting because fertility will actually mean that you're trying to conceive and you're trying to have a baby. So I would I would maybe more um, word it as hormonal balance. And so a lot of women have hormonal imbalance. Let's say they have irregular periods or they get a lot of symptoms with their PMS or something like that. And yes, I would say that absolutely matters because your normal hormonal cycle makes a really big difference in your life, in your body's systems, your body's regulation. It impacts so many other things like your bones and your libido and your brain and all these things. So I would say, yes, it absolutely matters. Do we have to attach it to fertility? Probably not, but it's more about your hormone balance. And we're going to get to um, talk about menstrual cycles, but before we do, um, what does it mean to optimize your body's fertility success? So when I say that, I usually mean looking at your body's hormonal balance, your normal cycles, but also your biochemistry, your physiology, because a lot of people don't realize that your body functions as a whole. And so if one thing is off, it's going to impact other things. And so a lot of people, when they're looking at fertility, they'll just say, well, I want to take this to help me ovulate. Well, ovulation is a symptom of you know other things that are going on and there's many different hormones that are involved some of them are reproductive hormones like estrogen progesterone but some of them are other things like thyroid or stress and so if you look at your body as a whole and try to figure out if it's working 
you know, as best as it possibly can, you're more likely to be able to then have a baby conceive, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So optimizing your body is really looking at all the different parts of the whole rather than just looking at one part. And what would be some ways that you work with patients to accomplish that? So some of the standard ways I think a lot of people would have heard about already in terms of nutrition and supplements and herbs and things like that. But I find that for me, I don't like to recommend those things. I find it gets very difficult for someone. I mean, I, I have a hard time remembering to take vitamins and supplements and I don't want to be swallowing 20 things, you know, every single day. And from a scientific perspective, you don't have to necessarily do that. If you actually change the way the body works, like your body's really smart. It knows what to do. It's, I think a lot of the times our brains get in the way and so, or our lifestyle, or we take our body for granted. And so a lot of times when I'm working with someone, the first thing I will do actually every single time, the first thing I will do is tell them what their body is doing and what their body is supposed to be doing. And so I teach them about how things work. And then I find it's easier to change things around because they now understand what they're looking for. They understand what the signals are. And so when I'm working with someone, the first thing I do is teach them about their body because it's hard for people to understand sometimes the differences of, you know, what's normal, what's not normal. And then they Google and they get all overwhelmed. So I kind of just really separate, you know, what's important for you and what's not important and kind of really get underneath that. And then I will add to that in terms of nutrition, you know, give your body what it needs to get that particular thing done. Or if they need supplements or I do a lot of acupuncture, you know, that kind of thing, that would be, I would say secondary or tertiary in terms of um, what I'm doing with someone. I love that. This is something that we often talk about is teaching people how to listen to their body. And it seems like that's the first step for you too. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Because when we don't even know what we're listening for, we can't do that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's talk menstrual cycles. So what is the normal range for menstrual cycle and bleeds? Can you talk to us about those factors? Yes. And I, I love this question because I've had so many women come into my office and have no idea that what they've experienced, been experiencing for 20 years is not what we would expect as a healthy cycle. Um, so I've had women who come in and they're like, oh, I bleed every time after sex. Well, that's not necessarily a good sign, you know, and not every woman has that. And people are shocked when we talk about it because it's not something that comes up in conversation. So when it comes to menstrual cycles, I usually would say you're looking for a period about every month. It could be plus or minus a few days. It doesn't have to be exactly 28 days, but generally about every month would be indic indicative of a healthy cycle. We also want to make sure that it's somewhat regular each month. So it's not like, you know, 24 days one month and 35 days the next month. That would be a little bit out of the norm. But if it's always 27 days or always 29 days, that would be more normal. In terms of bleeding, I would say this is also very different for each woman and I usually get into it quite in detail. So I'll say, I want you to pay attention to not only how much you bleed, but also what type of blood you're getting. So in terms of bleeding, normal bleeding, I would say you want more than say a liner. You don't wanna have like such little bleeding that you're only filling a liner or you're only noticing blood on wiping, that kind of thing. So you wanna be filling you know, certain amount of pads or tampons. It can be different for every woman, but a, a decent amount where you're filling at least a pad or a tampon, or if you're using a diva cup or whatever, um, and you're having to change it, let's say every few hours, that seems like a full cycle to me. Whereas if you're 
you know, on the other end of the spectrum, I need to have a super tampon and a super pad and I can bleed through if I don't change it every hour, that indicates a little bit too much for me. So that would be an indicator that maybe there's a lot of bleeding there that could indicate something else. So some of it is about the amount of blood and some of it is also about the quality of the blood. So is it bright red or is it, you know, dark and chunky and clotted? Are you getting a lot of cramps? Are you getting a lot of symptoms? So that kind of goes into the other things along with the menstrual cycle um, that I think are actually really important clues as to what's going on. Why can often the first few postpartum periods be the worst? So with postpartum specifically, your body's undergoing a lot of changes and your body's exposed to a lot of progesterone. And so the first few cycles can be pretty hard because your body's not really used to having the cycle regularly again. And the hormonal balance has shifted quite a lot. Plus, some of it is hormonal and some of it is just exhaustion. You know, your body is going through so much otherwise postpartum where you're having to take care of a baby, you're probably not sleeping very well, all of that kind of stuff. And so that actually impacts your hormones more than people realize. And so that's where the first few periods can be really exhausting. Plus you're losing blood again after however long you haven't been bleeding. So that impacts your iron levels, which probably were taxed already when you're pregnant and when you're breastfeeding and, you know, whatever your body has gone through and for however long, if it's been three months or if it's been a year, um, so a lot of times that's why it's because your body's kind of shifting to find its new normal again. And how would you say, so how um, can hormonal birth control affect someone's fertility? Yeah, so hormonal birth control, I mean, the whole point of birth control pills are to make sure you don't get pregnant. And so a lot of people actually think that your birth control pill is tricking your body into you know, thinking you're pregnant, which is actually not how it works. So your body actually, when you're taking the birth control pill, your body doesn't ovulate, in which case you're not going to get pregnant. So it actually stops the ovulation process, which also means that it affects the normal cycling of your estrogen, your progesterone, um, you know, the symphony of what happens with your cycles. And so it will impact your fertility in that it is actually trying to prevent it. So it stops the ovulation but also it impacts other things. So it'll impact your cervical mucus. So the discharge that comes out of your vagina um, or through your cervix that some people will notice at the vaginal level. Um, it impacts your uterine lining. So the endometrium lining, it impacts that because it's trying to prevent a potential implantation. And so that will actually change your fertility while you're on it. And then after you get off of it, it actually takes your body a while to figure out what to do next. Yeah, and speaking of that, this is definitely my experience of coming off the pill, being on it for like 10 years probably at mm -hmm. least. And when I came off the pill, it took me a good six, seven months to regain a cycle to get my period back. Is that common? What might be average for people in terms of coming off the pill and regaining a cycle? Yeah, it's actually more common than people think. A lot of people think, oh, I'm going to go off the pill, just get my period back right away. And that does happen for a lot of women. But, you know, somewhere like I think it's 5% of women will actually not get a period back at all. Um, and so I actually will usually say it takes about four to six months sometimes um, to actually get your body back into the normal range. For some women who are trying to get pregnant, that's a long time. So often I try to work with, you know, a shorter time window, like in the three to four month range. But your body is your body and it's trying to do what it can. And so we try to optimize it as much as we can. But generally speaking, it takes somewhere between three to six months for your body to actually become um, 
you know, back to its normal cycle. Even if you get a period right away, that doesn't mean that your hormones are balanced or that your body's working well because the birth control pill can impact your digestive system and, you know, your sleep cycles and your weight and like all these different things. And so even if you get a period back, that doesn't mean that your body's back to a, a totally normal state. That's so interesting. And I think also key for people to know because perhaps it might take you this many months to get a cycle back and then it could take you how many more months to get pregnant on top of that. You got it. Yeah, yeah exactly. A couple more questions about cycles specifically. Is it normal, considered normal, if one cycle one month is 29 days and then the next is 31? Is it normal if it's off by a couple of days every cycle? I would say a few days here and there is not as much of a concern, although if it's changing significantly over time. So I find, especially with fertility, let's say you're in your 30s and then, you know, over time, let's say over six months, it starts getting longer or it starts getting shorter more consistently. That would indicate something's going on, probably with ovulation um, or maybe with your hormones. But if it's here and there a day plus or minus, I don't worry about it too, too much unless there's other indicators of something going on. Okay, and one more selfish question because this has come up for me postpartum this time. The first couple of cycles I had, ovulation was awful, so painful. Why does that happen? That can happen for a number of different reasons. Sometimes it's hormonal imbalance. Sometimes if it's extremely painful, it could indicate a cyst. And so depending on you know, the type of pain you're having or how long it lasted or your history, if you've had cysts before. Um, so that's something that's kind of a red flag for me when someone says that their their ovulation is really, really painful. Um, so it could be a number of factors and sometimes it's that hormonal piece. Also, when if you think about postpartum, like your body hasn't ovulated for some time and then your brain is like ovulate, ovulate, ovulate to your ovaries and sometimes it takes them a while to respond. And so then that can indicate, you know, more of a different kind of follicle development in terms of like the intensity of that. And that can be painful sometimes, which is why I always get concerned about cysts. Um, but usually it's kind of a regulation of that. And the other thing I find causes pain sometimes with ovulation, but sometimes with a heavy or uncomfortable period is adrenal fatigue. So especially in your case, if it's a second child, you're already, you know, really exhausted the adrenal fatigue diagnosis, like if anyone's scientific or medical is listening, it's not really a full diagnosis, but it's a concept that I still think is valuable. Um, but scientifically, we're really just looking at your, your stress levels and your cortisol levels. And what happens with cortisol, a lot of women don't realize is when you're exhausted and you're tired and you're stressed, you know that fight or flight where you're like, I'm in a jungle running from a lion. All things that are not lions in our today's society, like I have no sleep, my, you know, my husband and I got into a fight or, you know, whatever that is, my toddler is screaming, that is a lion in your body because they can't, your brain can't differentiate if this is like a death threat or if it's a toddler screaming, sometimes it feels the same, right? And so your body actually uses all its cortisol and stress hormone and that steals energy or building blocks, let's say, from all your reproductive hormones. And so for a lot of women, stress plays a role in the cycle, which also related to this postpartum, where it actually takes its building blocks and biochemically steals it from other non-essential um, areas of the body. Because if you're trying to run away from a lion, you're not thinking about having a baby, right? And so all the estrogen, progesterone, that stuff will get shuffled over to the cortisol so that you can survive. So that could be another reason too. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's fascinating. And you were mentioning about um, exhaustion during postpartum periods and those periods, I just felt 
completely wiped and that felt like a different experience um and it's all that you're saying like running from a lion it feels like every day with a (laughs) three-year-old yeah (laughs) yes absolutely uh i and i'm loving this conversation uh that we're talking about menstrual cycles and i feel like we need to have you back on just about periods and menstrual cycles because i have so many questions um just because a lot of our listeners to um you know, having daughters, um, and Jess and I both have a daughter and just thinking about my experience with my period growing up and just early signs, if we could pick things up and get them addressed sooner, if that could affect, you know, fertility or just even comfort in life. Cause I had dysmenorrhea at a really young age. My physician didn't seem to know what was going on. And I don't want to say I grew out of it because I'm sure there were a lot of different factors in that, but I feel like my mom was kind of at a loss of what I was going through because she didn't go through it. Um, So yeah, I think we definitely need to have you back just all about periods. (laughs) I would absolutely love that. And I love the fact that you're thinking ahead for your daughters. I've got two daughters as well. And I do think that today's society is very different than it was even when we were kids or when our parents were kids. And and I think the girls at each generation go through different things. Some of it is obviously the same because we all have menstrual cycles and all that, but the exposure that we have, the melatonin, the light exposure, the technology, the hormones, like all that stuff actually changes over generation by generation. And I've noticed in my practice, a lot of girls are getting their period much earlier. A lot of women are going through menopause much earlier. And so that whole transition phase is really, really important. So yeah, I would love to talk about that. (laughs) Yeah, amazing. Uh, Let's talk about a couple more cycle things and then we'll get into some more specific fertility stuff. What are the first steps you might take with someone who isn't having a period? Where do you even begin? Yeah, usually first I do testing because we need to know why they're not having a period. So do they actually have a hormonal imbalance? Which hormones are, you know, more more having problems than other hormones? And so we can't just assume that it's one cause. There's actually many different things that could cause that. So the first thing I would do would be to test. So it would be you're testing their prolactin and their FSH and their LH and, you know, um, estrogen, all the hormonal stuff, but also... I would test thyroid because thyroid hormone obviously also impacts reproductive hormone or, um, you know, we look at their stress levels because a lot of times women will skip periods if they're really under heavy stress. I look at their eating patterns or exercise patterns. Sometimes, you know, anorexia or eating disorders can impact um, the periods as well. So you need to kind of first figure out why the woman's not having a period and then you can kind of look into how to treat it. I'm so glad you brought that up. We recently had a guest on Jess Dalladay who um, by the time this episode comes out, her episode will be out. Um, And she talked to us about her experience with hypothalamic amenorrhea and her um, struggles with fertility. I don't believe she saw a naturopathic doctor, but the fertility specialist she did see, she said they weren't really aware of that diagnosis or what to do about it and just kind of wanted to put her on medication. So I'm wondering... What would be the difference if someone sees a naturopathic doctor with that diagnosis? Like what would be um, your next steps into regaining her fertility? You know, I feel like that's a, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because I find that our training is different. So I work with a lot of medical doctors, fertility specialists, that kind of thing. And 
I know a lot of people have their opinions about different health providers, but I really believe in collaboration. I feel like I have limitations in my knowledge. They have limitations in their knowledge. We have different approaches. We should just work together and I'll, you know, be, be a happy family. Um, sometimes we can't do that or it's not as easy, but I do find that naturopaths or at least my training in naturopathic medicine and then having, you know, the PhD and all that being exposed to other types of health providers, we all have different training. And so the information that I have on nutritional um, you know, absorption and, you know, the way your body converts certain vitamins, that's different information than I would say a medical doctor would have or a chiropractor would have or whatever. And so the same thing with hypothalamic dysfunction or any other kind of hormonal um, process, I find that my experience is different, my knowledge is different, and my approach is different. It doesn't mean it's better, it's just different. And so that's where I find uh, if you don't have the answer from the health provider that you are seeking, then you need to look at another health provider. And even when I work with women, I'll say, this is what I'm expecting to happen. And if it's not going to happen in this amount of time, now with this many years experience, I can say, you know, I expect this to happen in this amount of time. And if it's not happening, I don't want to waste your time. I don't want to waste my time. And then I just send them along. And so when it comes to hormonal imbalance, especially anything that affects the brain and organ axis, so HPA, HPO, axes, whatever that is, we're always looking at your brain function, your hormone function, feedback loops, and other things that could be impacted. Because if she's having that hypothalamic amenorrhea, it's not just the hormones, it's not just the ovaries that are impacted. More likely, it's other hormone areas that are impacted, the thyroid, other things, because the hypothalamus actually impacts so much in your body because it's the top of the axis, right? So it goes to the pituitary and that goes to all your other um, areas, you know? And so we have to look at all the other factors. And I think when it comes to medicine, some of it is training, some of it is their ability in the office. They have a few minutes, they have to kind of pick and choose, you know, which, which area is the best thing to approach. They also have training in terms of what medications are going to be used, but they don't necessarily have the lifestyle changes. They don't have the information at their disposal about what kinds of things make things better or what makes things worse. So I feel like putting the puzzle pieces together is something that naturopaths excel at because we have a lot of time to get into it. We really get into that relationship with our patients. And so you'd be surprised. Sometimes I, I had a woman who had insomnia. I went to like many doctors and we were chatting and I don't know, after such a long history, she was like, my boyfriend's in Australia and we, you know, I have to get up at three in the morning. And it sounds like something she should have figured out. Right. But it was just, she just hadn't connected the fact that, you know, doing this on a regular basis totally messed up her sleep cycle. And that was a very easy fix. She didn't have to go on sleep medications. You know what I mean? So it sounds like a simple example, but you'd be surprised how many times that happens in my office. I'm sure. This is <laughs> such important information to people for people to be aware of. I just want to mention what you said about testing the thyroid. Often, say a medical provider might solely test TSH. What do you test for? Yeah, you already know the answer to this one, I think, from the question that you Been asked. There. Yes. So TSH. So I think people get confused about TSH quite a lot. TSH is released from your brain and then it tells your thyroid, hey, I need more thyroid hormone. The actual thyroid hormone that's released is T3, T4. And so when we test for TSH, I think some of it is limitations of our health system and you know, coverage and things like that. But it's sort of a baseline screen to say, hey, is something going on? We're just going to test the TSH, which is just at that brain level. 
Um, but I usually go based on symptoms. And so if the patient is saying my TSH is normal, my doctor already checked it, but I still have all these symptoms, then that indicates to me that there is, it's not optimal. So when I said about making sure your body's functioning optimally, and also the range, okay, so this is the other thing I think that differs with us in terms of health provider approach. The range of thyroid normal testing is, I would say, quite wide. So, you know, anything from like 0.3 or 0.5, depending on the lab, could be normal all the way up to like four or five for some labs. Whereas for me, I would like it to be in a tighter range because if you're on the edge of normal in terms of your lab test results, then that could still mean you have symptoms. And so when I'm looking at a thyroid, TSH might be one good indicator, but then we're also looking for T3 and T4, and we're also looking at antibodies because a large number of people who have thyroid symptoms, particularly hypothyroid, also have antibodies. Um, and that's not something that's normally tested for, partly because there's not much the medical system does about it, but because it's an autoimmune condition and because it means that there's something else going on in the body, there's a lot that natural medicine can do for autoimmunity and for inflammation and things like that. And so that's something that I can actually do something about, whereas the medical system maybe doesn't have as much at their disposal in terms of treatment. Um, so I would do probably a much more detailed thyroid analysis. I feel like I was gonna... people don't know that. And all yeah. my clients, when they get their their hormones tested, they always talk about TSH. My doctor said it was normal. Why is all this stuff still happening? Yeah, and because you've asked a lot about postpartum, I'll also just volunteer the information that iron is another one that is, doctors say it's normal, but the range of normal iron, and again, depending on the lab, you could be at you know, iron stores, which is ferritin, at six, and you could be at 206, and you would be totally normal. And so depending on the lab, sometimes it's a little different, but generally speaking, I see symptoms way, you know, in a way different range. And so I like to see iron way, way higher than, you know, the low range of normal, and it won't be flagged unless it's flagged by the lab. So I usually take lab tests and interpret them as a tool. It's not like a, this is, this is the answer. You don't have anything wrong with you because your iron is normal. You know, it's, if you have symptoms, we're looking into it. Maybe there's something going on there. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, no, I think we're good to skip yeah. ahead. This is why I feel so passionate about educating women because they yeah. just believe that everything's normal and they get their blood test yeah. back, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I find with any time I've had blood tests, whether pregnancy or before um, ever getting pregnant, is I was always with a naturopath. And so they'd be like, you know, I'd really like a copy because, and I appreciated it because they would catch stuff that perhaps yeah. my doctor or my midwife may consider again, within the normal range. And even if it is, my naturopath would be like, well, we can do that. Like we can balance it out more and get, not just be within the normal range. Like there's more to it than that. Yeah. Yeah. It's functioning better. And also using a preventative approach. Like you don't want to wait till you're, you know, laying down and can't get up because of your thyroid or your iron. You want to use a preventative approach so that you can actually treat it before it becomes a problem. So I read this on your website and it said, in the case of male and female partnerships, approximately 40 to 50% of all fertility issues are due to male factor, yet the pressure generally remains on the female's reproductive health. So first, this makes me very ragey, so angry, and it's the absolute truth. Second, what might be happening with the male's fertility that is causing an issue with conception? Yeah, let's just like really get into being honest. Like I am so brutally honest with my patients, but you know, when you're in 
public and podcasting, sometimes you have to be a little careful. But to be honest, this is a very big problem for me in my practice. So much so that I had to actually start saying, I will not treat you unless you bring your partner because it is a two person thing. And um, I don't think that it's always the male fault. Like sometimes they have a hard time talking about it or they don't know. So it's not just that they are not willing to be tested. I think a lot of times it's just that we don't really talk about male fertility. And I think that's, you know, there's a historical, you know, there's not very much option for male contraception. And, you know, there's just all, all that stuff. Um, but I, I do feel like it, it really bothers me too that it's just a woman's issue, which it shouldn't be. And so much of fertility is male factor. In fact, not just getting pregnant, but even with miscarriage, so staying pregnant, a huge part of that is the DNA inside the sperm. And so what could be causing issues? I mean, similar stuff to what causes women issues. I know that women's bodies have more hormonal complexity, but you know, it's still about lifestyle. It's still about getting the right nutrients. It's still about exposure to environment. It's about uh, making sure that your hormones are working. A lot of men, even younger men, have low testosterone levels and they don't realize it. Or they have issues going on with their scrotum, which, again, a lot of men think that this is, you know, something that they might have to deal with in their 60s or 70s. But it's actually quite common for it to happen when you're in your 20s and 30s. In fact, even testicular cancer um, happens quite younger um, in terms of population um, age. And so these are things that I think need to be talked about earlier um, and even earlier in the process because I've had many times where you know I'm treating a woman and I'm like you need to get your husband tested we need to talk about his fertility and for whatever reason they don't do it and then you're wasting you know six months a year and then all of a sudden finally you find out that there's an issue with the male and so I don't like to blame anyone I'm not saying that you know oh it's the male factor fertility and it's his fault or you know it's not about that it's about if you're going to go into parenthood you know, you're both going to be parents and you both have to get involved. You know, just like when my husband takes care of the kids, he's not babysitting, he's parenting, you know? And so I feel like that's, it has to be both partners. Mm -hmm. I'm going on a tangent. <laughs> oh, it says no. a lot about how yeah. we view mothering in the society. And we wanted to also talk about um, kind of intimacy and sex when it comes to fertility. So Focusing on ovulation and timing and not one's pleasure can make intercourse really not fun. Um, do you have any tips for our listeners who are going through this currently? Yes, I could talk about this all day. I feel like um, we have to kind of get into the relationship and the emotional aspect of fertility because otherwise it's just very mechanical. And I find it's actually more stressful if you're just thinking about, oh, I have to do this for ovulation. And so the whole intimacy piece is very much ignored, I think. And especially in certain, uh, it could be genders, but also in certain cultures. So for myself, coming from a South Asian background, like we don't, we don't talk about that stuff. And I feel very passionately about the fact that we should because we should enjoy the process we should enjoy being with our partners and of course when you go through fertility it becomes all about having a baby so the first thing that i usually do is try to as much as possible although it's difficult is to separate the outcome and the actual process so when you're trying to get pregnant i try to change the conversation to how can we be healthier, how can we, you know, feel better in our skin, all of that kind of stuff. And then I usually will separate the outcome. And so if I'm working with someone in person, I will say, you know, I know what you need. 
give me a couple of months to worry about your fertility. Let go of it because I'm going to do the worrying just for three months. And then you can pick it up again if I'm not successful, no problem. But it kind of gives them a bit of a break to say someone else is thinking about my treatment protocol. Someone else is telling me what to do. I'm just going to leave that alone. So the first thing is to separate the outcome if it's at all possible. If I'm educating women online, because now I also do that where it's like, you know, you want to ask your doctor the right questions, but you can't come in to see me in person. Here's some information. It's the same kind of thing, but generally it's lo them looking at their bodies and trying to figure out what's going on. And so that's where the stress piece is really tricky to balance. But in terms of the relationship, the first thing is to separate, you know, the outcome, it, this has to be a baby, you know, because as soon as you do that, it's like you're using your husband for his sperm. You know, I need you now, I'm ovulating, and then basically you're a stranger for the next three weeks or whatever. And so usually the first thing I do is I tell people to reconnect. And it's hard to say, go on date night or, you know, because there's this elephant of this fertility thing in the room. And so usually I'll say, you know, try to get out of your head. So for women and men, this is going to be a generalization, but a lot of times we handle intimacy differently. So for men, a lot of times it's physical. There is, of course, the emotional piece and the stress piece and all of that. But arousal is oftentimes physical. And whereas for women, it can be a lot more emotional. And because we tend to be, again, generalizing, we tend to be multitaskers. A lot of women will lay in the bed and be like, okay, is this going to get me pregnant? I should lift up my hips. I should turn this way. I should." And so there's too many things going on in our brain. And so I tell them to kind of separate that and just try to be in the moment. And physiologically and biologically, because I teach women about their bodies, the position is less important than the hormones that are involved when you're aroused. And so if that's what's, you know, hanging you up about, I have to be in this position or I can't be in the shower, I'll wash away my lube, like whatever that is, you know, if we can separate that and start focusing on the physical, you know, being, I, I just wrote an article, I'm hoping to submit it somewhere, but like on mindfulness and like how to have mind blowing sex while you're being mindful, because you have to actually, you know, understand your body, feel your body, be in the moment. And that's really hard for a lot of people. So if we separate the outcome, and then really try to connect with your partner. Um, some women will have a hard time, so I'll also suggest, you know, try to think of the reasons why you love your partner. Because we get so frustrated with fertility, it's like, oh, you know, now it's not, I'm not pregnant and he's drinking too much beer and whatever it is. And you're kind of forgetting why you're together. So for women, again, because there's a lot of emotion involved, I'll say like, try to remember all the nice things that you like about your partner. And for men, it'll be like, you know, Try to slow, try to, you know, hug him when you're not being intimate so that there's like that physical connection or knowing your partner. Um, the other thing I often talk about, I'm just going on and on here. <laughs> the other thing I often talk about, especially with women who are a little bit more reserved with their sexuality, is to know what you like physically or emotionally. Like what turns you on? What makes you feel that connection and that intimacy? Because I believe even if you take out the fertility, part of a good healthy relationship is that physical connection and so if you understand your own body it's easier for you to then communicate for your partner how to help you and how to make you pleasured you know or, or vice versa so you kind of have to take responsibility for your own pleasure as well and he does too but a lot of times men have a easier time with that um yeah so there's a lot we can do <laughs> a lot we can do <laughs> yeah that's such useful advice and as you're talking, I'm just imagining the emotional aspects of sex and intimacy compounded then by the stress of trying to conceive or when you're struggling with fertility and all just the communication breakdowns that can occur and the stress and the resentment pieces that come up in the relationship itself. 
Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And it, it, I think it becomes a spiral. And so that's part of what we need to do when we're treating fertility is really to try to avoid that spiral. Super it's tough. so tough. It's so tough. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about, this is something that I'm really interested in because I try to uh, keep my clients away from this as much as possible. But for those struggling with conception, how do you help your clients not fall into the wellness diet trap? As in, they feel like they're doing all the right things and then they should get pregnant. They're doing all this hard work and then they should get pregnant. Or it's one more right thing they need to do after the other in terms of their nutrition, their exercise, their stress management management it becomes this full-time job to like getting quote-unquote healthier that must be a struggle as well yes I absolutely find it a struggle but I will say that there's a few things that I do that I think help um, the first thing is again separating the outcome which is very difficult to do but if you can separate the outcome and say like I'm trying to get healthy and then the pregnancy is out of my control I do find a lot of times you know as as just generally in our society, we're used to just working harder to getting what we want. And then we're like, yes, I, I just need this thing. And if I work harder and I do this thing, I'm gonna get what I want. But unfortunately with fertility, we can't control that outcome. And some of the stuff is not in our control. And so if we can kind of separate what we can control versus what we can't control, that actually makes a big difference. If we can kind of find some other way to whatever it is, you know, if you're religious or you trust the universe or whatever that may be, um, to kind of understand what is in our power to do and what is not in our power to do. So that's the first thing that I, easy to say, very hard to do. But the bigger thing that I usually work on is the judgment. And so I've actually had this conversation many times, even just this week in my practice, and I'll have women will say things like, you know, I feel like something's wrong with me, or I feel like I failed, or, you know, everyone's asking me why I don't have a kid and I, this is what I should be doing. Or, um, you know, what's my role? What's my role as a woman? What's my purpose in life if I can't have a kid? And so that I feel is a judgment on ourselves. And so I think it's normal and natural to have emotions. It's normal to feel frustrated. It's normal to feel sad when someone else gets pregnant because you're happy for them, but you're sad for yourself. These are all, I think, healthy emotions because we experience them. I think what's unhealthy is when we judge ourselves for it. Like I shouldn't be upset for that woman or, or you know, I should, I should be happy for her or I should be better at this or I, I ate that chocolate and I wasn't supposed to and, you know, I, I, I failed, you know, that kind of thing. And so I usually tell people the first thing is to try as much as possible is to not judge yourself for these emotions and just to know that it's normal and natural and it, it really sucks to have fertility problems. Like it really sucks and that's okay. And if that means you have to have your glass of wine on your day one of your period because you're sad, like I'm okay with that. It's just a matter of understanding that you have to find a way to deal with your emotions in as healthy a way possible and then not judge yourself for that. Um, and that is where I find the biggest challenge is, is to try to figure out, you know, if that judgment is affecting how you interpret your situation and how to kind of separate yourself. And so a lot of techniques that I use, because you have to separate, but I have to also teach women how to do that, which is very difficult. Um, sometimes I'll talk to them about what, what actually bothers them. So if it's like, I don't have a purpose, then we talk about what 
in my mind, what the definition of motherhood is. Like, I don't think motherhood is having a biological child. I don't even think it has anything to do with children. You can, in, in my mind, and this definition can be different for everyone, for me, motherhood is about nurturing. That's sort of what I define for myself. And if I am nurturing to my children, I feel like I did a good job. That doesn't mean I have to be home. doesn't mean I have to go to work. It just means that I have to do my best to nurture my children. That's sort of my definition. And so I can also have that experience in other ways if they're not children. Like I do that for my patients. I do that for my family. I do that when I volunteer. And so if we can redefine that definition of your role, your purpose in life, then that can help you separate that judgment. And so whatever that is, if it's, you know, I have one woman who's like, I need a legacy. If I don't have kids, like what happens to me? Well, there's other ways to create that. Um, and that, that don't pin your hopes on something that you don't have control over. Yeah, that is really great advice because this is heavy, heavy stuff for people. And so I like that you talk about the tools of how you actually help people get there other than just saying, don't stress about it. It's going to be fine. Like that is... Ah, don't say that to people. Yeah, it's so terrible. (laughs) And I think that that is a frustrating element that my clients bring up a lot of times is that literally people say to them, well, you're probably just too stressed out. You should just not be stressed and then you will get pregnant. And they're like, really? Like... That that's the advice. Yeah, and it's okay to want to punch someone for that. You can't actually <laughs> punch them, but it's okay to want to. <laughs> okay, Rishma, that was all oh, such such good conversation. Thank you so much. Can you tell us where we can find out more about you and how people might be able to work with you? Yeah, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I love your guys' stuff. I've been listening to your podcast too, so I really appreciate all that you're putting out there, and I'm really happy to be here. Um, If people want to find me, they just have to go to my website. I'm all over social media too, so Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook. You can get all the links on my website, which is just my name, rishmawalji.com. Perfect. We can link it if nobody knows how to spell it. (laughs) Yeah, we absolutely will put those links in the show notes so we can find you and learn more from you. Such good education. Thank you again. Thank you so much. On the next episode of To Birth and Beyond, we have registered massage therapist Nicole Nifo. Nicole works primarily with pregnant and postpartum populations, and it was so incredible to hear her talk about the work that she does, how she treats clients in the perinatal chapters to help their physical comfort and mental health how she helps them work with pelvic and low back pain, and of particular interest about how she helps them with C-section recovery. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. You can find any links or resources we discussed in the show notes at tobirthandbeyond.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the To Birth and Beyond podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. 